This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Invasion. Chuds. John Kavalik. And Nocebo Curses. Everyone remembers their first trip to the island of Alamarha. You mean that strange, conspiracy-ridden island off the coast of North Africa known for its lax regulations and mysteriously authoritarian government? I thought it was in the Mediterranean. Didn't everyone? Atlas Games, the publisher of Feng Shui and Unknown Armies, is celebrating their recent Kickstarter success. You're talking about the Kickstarter for the new edition of Over the Edge, the legendary role-playing game of weird urban danger? Indeed, and dear listeners, you're invited to join other backers by pre-ordering the game via Backer I'm putting on my state-sponsored party hat as we speak. If rampant New Age occultism, gangs of baboons, murderous assassins, and mad scientists in a modern-day setting of weirdness and menace tickle your fancy, this is the game for you. Over the Edge is coming to game stores in 2019, but you can pre-order on Backer Kit now at atlas-games.com slash kickstartote. It's exactly the same Alamarha you always knew. Only this time, it's different. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more into the gaming hut. But what's that in the middle of the table of the gaming hut? It's a Martian tripod! Oh no! Is the gaming hut being invaded, or is it merely preparing a response to a question from Patreon backer Jean-Francois Paradis, who asks... How would you handle a campaign where the PCs belong to a nation being invaded and colonized by a more technologically advanced people, particularly if PCs have no chance to stop it? Uh, Robin, did you have first thoughts on this? So if the PCs have no chance to stop it, that implies that there is a didactic quality to uh, what we're looking at. This is uh, like... Uh, Monopoly, the thing that makes it unfun is the thing that makes it didactic. Um, <laughs> Monopoly famously, of course, is to teach you, uh, the horrors of capitalism and therefore the fact that you can never come from behind to win and defeat the early leader is, uh, part of the message of Monopoly and part of the feeling of a campaign that's all about being colonized of course, is to uh, presumably teach you uh, uh, empathy through the genre lens uh, with uh, the experience of uh, being colonized. And so the first thing always is when you do something that is going to bum the players out is to get buy-in yeah. and let them, because uh, <laughs> if you just do the War of the Worlds, uh, we are used to the War of the Worlds. You know, the, the world is nearly destroyed, but we get to come back and win at the end uh, with our uh, fancy-schmancy microbes killing off the aliens. But if it's about colonization, of course, this is uh, like history uh, in which the bad guys win, uh, which segues into, uh, Ken, I believe you have a, a suggestion for something that already mostly does this. Exactly. That uh, Speaking of didactic play, although in this case it's not unfun, uh, because, uh, as you say, A, there's buy-in, and B, because the mechanics actually intend to build on uh, the experience. Uh, the game Dog Eat Dog, an RPG by Liam Lewinog Burke, which is about 
Uh, it began as a, you're the natives of a Pacific island, and suddenly the uh, the Europeans or the Americans have shown up in their ships, and they're setting up a coaling station, they're colonizing your island, and there's literally nothing you can do. You're the humans in front of the Martians, you're the Samoans in front of the Americans. Uh, this is what you're gonna gonna be your life from now on, and it's about the experience of sort of understanding that. To what degree can you keep any part of your culture alive? To what degree do you want to? Do you want to collaborate with these guys? Do you want to die a martyr and maybe inspire a national movement two hundred years from now when it's way too late to do anyone any good? What what are your responses? And it gives you the panoply of responses and a, and a way to play them out and sort of paints that little picture in a, uh, a didactic, but in this case, uh, interesting uh, model. But the trouble with Dog Eat Dog, not that it has a trouble, is that it is not a campaign game. Obviously, because it's sort of unloading the whole experience on you in one or two sessions of play, like a lot of story games do. So there's not a lot of there there once you're done saying, well, that was terrible. Uh, sucks to be you, Tahiti, or whatever it was, uh, or sucks to be us, Tahiti, I guess in this case. And so then you're done. That was the point of the game. So as far as a campaign play of the sort that uh, Jean-Francois is asking for, you need to sort of maybe play dog eat dog or at least study it and take the lessons on board and see if there is a way to find the fun in the experience. And a lot of that is going to involve the buy-in from the players sort of at the beginning where you can say, are you part of the glorious, but probably doomed resistance movement? Are you part of the criminal underground that springs up always in these colonial societies where there's one segment that becomes rich as the middlemen between uh, the colonizers and the colonized? Are you uh, people who think, well, at least they're bringing superior technology. Let's try and use this to improve our situation uh, by either collaboration or by adaptation. And you can, you know, cast this as, say, the government of Siam, which, as it saw European colonization pressing in, uh, tried to adapt as rapidly as it could and therefore remained a sort of titular independence throughout the colonial period. Or you can say, uh, nope, you're going to be uh, the government of somewhere like the Philippines that, you know, basically um, uh, there's a, a big faction that welcomed the Americans and said, let's use them to become a, a major trade entrepot and build up uh, a capitalist Philippines. Obviously, there was a whole bunch of Philippines that said, uh, no, thank you, and fought a long and, as we mentioned previously, doomed war against the Americans. So I guess the question is, do you want to be the Moros or do you want to be the Marcoses? Right. Right. Because uh, often uh, the uh, colonizing force will choose, particularly if there's conquering some place that has, uh, you know, a non monolithic indigenous population, they will choose one of the indigenous peoples to ally with as as to be their sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, weapon slash uh, intermediary. And so one possible way to handle this is you are that group. You're their favorite group who are. Everything will be fine. We'll, we'll follow the treaties with you, but you help us, uh, with the conquest. And so that gives the, uh, player group, uh, a longer period of agency, but it also gives you a moral qualm, uh, because then you're in a, a, a situation where things are ambiguous and you as the players know that you're, uh, you know, you're helping yourself survive longer, but at the expense of other people. And you could explore the, uh, the, the ambiguity, the moral ambiguity of that, and it would at least have the device of keeping you able to move around in society longer because you have privileges that the rest of the conquered people don't. And so you could be the, 
you know, the, the favored group. Uh, but, uh, again, uh, that's, that's kind of heavy duty. So, uh, perhaps a different way to, uh, have, you know, a, a sense of other than just we're being, uh, you know, hammered week in and week out over the course of this, uh, uh campaign, because if you are the resistance, uh, to a, uh, first of all, to a conquest and then to the occupation and, you know that the, the conquest is going to occur and it's going to move into occupation. Uh, that has all sorts of other challenges. For example, the players from week to week to week have very little agency, very little room to maneuver. And uh, that resistance campaign uh, is tough in role playing because uh, players, uh, you know, in that situation tend to sort of turtle and hunker down and not do very much, which of course is, the sensible thing. Yeah, right. I mean, the sensible thing is pay your taxes, uh, worship your gods in private and wait for the invaders to get bored or die. Right. Um, and so, uh, I guess that is an option, right? You could do a drama system campaign about you're just living under occupation and trying to make a go of it. And the, the threat of, uh, taking on the attention of the, uh, oppressors is sort of always going on in the background, but it's not a resistance campaign. It's a, you know, life during wartime campaign. So that's one way to do it. Another way would be a saga campaign where, uh, you are following, you know, one family that has a, a history in the resistance from, you know, you, you do one scenario that is the, the conquest or, well, I guess one scenario is contact. Uh, and there's obviously some, uh, reason why you're unable to, uh, destroy the uh the invaders when they first appear and and try to make friends with you and assure you that everything's going to be fine uh and then uh you know the second one is the conquest and then you then you do the occupation and then you do the uh you know the next generation while they try to assimilate assimilate you into their culture so there's one that's set in a, a residential school or what have you and then you do you know, the, the next generation after that is an attempt to, uh, begin to, you know, reassert your identity and perhaps a more, uh, democratic, less overtly oppressive majority that you're dealing with and, and, uh, you know, try and find the solution after that. And, and of course, the end of that would be something we haven't seen so far, which is, you know, successful, uh, reconciliation with uh, indigenous people. So you could, uh, you know, do that. Uh, over time and, uh, and perhaps that would give, it would at least give a sense of, of variance and, and give you the full sort of trajectory over a period of, of your campaign rather than, okay, well, this is the episode where we try to blow up the communications tower and then we run away. And then the next episode is, oh, well, this is where we try to blow up the trade depot and then we run away and, the third episode is, uh, here's where you try to rescue the people who got, uh, captured by the, uh, secret police, uh, distributing leaflets and then get away. And so that would, uh, give you, uh, an addition of more scope, a uh, more variance in what's going on from, uh, episode to episode and, uh, give you at least a sort of a sense of historical perspective on the fact that you're always, you're on the losing side of history week in, week out. Yeah. The other way to do it is to rather than make it the foreground, like a generation game or like dog eat dog does make it the background where you're playing, you know, a straight up cyberpunk, uh gangster game where you're, you know, fighting, uh, the other bunch of bad guys, uh, you know, the, the other bunch of locals who want in on the, uh, opium trade or whatever. And, you know that there is a presence of the colonizers and they have better technology than your opponents usually do, but 
if you can get some of it or turn the, you know, eye of Sauron of the colonizer onto your enemy, that becomes one tactic. And then maybe every now and again, you've got to rescue someone from the secret police because, uh, either you're trying to do a favor for the resistance movement so that they'll attack your, uh, uh opponents or, uh, because of family ties or some other reason, but that's not the focus of it. The focus is consolidating your monopoly on the smuggled or stolen advanced technology and uh taking over the, the some aspect of the underground whether that be you know narcotics or or anything else that happens in a in a big city and that uh sort of roiling underbelly gives you you still have agency you're still able to do lots of things and then you can decide is the focus of the campaign just to become the biggest gang in occupied uh, Manila or occupied Mexico City, if you take it back to the 17th century? Or is it to lay the groundwork for a for a rebellion and the rebellion maybe happens as the final act of the campaign? And whether they live or die, the campaign is over uh, and maybe they succeed or maybe, you know, you your your story inspired people 100 years from now to uh, rebel against the the oppressor uh, using the technology that you had been smuggling all of this time into the city uh, to create the, uh, weapons that would allow them to fight or whatever else. Maybe it's just your moral example. And we're carefully airbrushing the fact that you're a bunch of narcotic smugglers out of the history books. I mean, that can be sort of the thing where you still have a campaign with an end and a defined arc. And the story begins with you far down away from the occupier's notice. And then it, because as you rise in power, it becomes more about what do you do once you attract the attention of the colonial governor? And, uh, and that becomes the, the, the question, but you only sort of have to answer it once. Now you have to be comfortable playing sort of street criminals, but if Shadowrun has taught us anything, it's that people love playing street criminals. And you can certainly take other genres and place them in the context of a, a an occupation. So you could do, you know, superheroes in a world where the aliens have, have landed and they are in charge and, uh, you know, society is going on as usual with the, they're extracting, uh, resources, uh, from everybody. And, uh, uh, of course, if you try to fight them, they, uh, they zap you with their death rays. But other than that, they just, uh, they want you to continue, uh, you know, they're not trying to destroy your civilization. They're trying to, uh, basically heavily tax it. So, uh, you know, the superheroes can go on in this world and, uh, you know, fighting crime and doing superhero types of things. And they know where the guardrails are. Uh, they have a alien overseer that they have to report to after, uh, every uh, episode. But, uh, you know, a- again, following the template that you laid out at the beginning, uh, the, it's more of a typical superhero story. And then at the end, it turns into resistance story, uh, or swap in, you know, you are, uh, horror, uh, occulted investigators in a world, uh, that the aliens have taken over. Or yeah, you, you could know, easily so- be, for example, uh, Mexican natives who live under Spanish colonialism, but you're like, uh, it doesn't matter what the Spanish say. We still have to keep the sun burning and we have to make sure that, um, the dark forces of Mictlan don't sneak out and start eating people because the Spanish have ruined all the temples that keep the dark forces of Mictlan in check. So we have to go hunt them and we also have to stay out of the, off the radar of the Spanish because they'll burn us as witches if they catch us using magic. Yeah. That might ab- absolutely be the, the way to bring that in, uh, in a more subtle way and, and we could, continue for the rest of the hour going <laughs> it's samurai but the alien have taken over right. but uh we have uh, more segments to get to so we do so, so let's escape the death ray 
uh, and uh, move through this uh, commercial and see what waits for us on the other side. In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touch the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe, what are you waiting for? The end of the world? The clanking of chains, the uh, screaming of the terrified, and uh, in this case, the uh, slavering noises coming uh, from the uh, sewer grates and under the manhole covers tell us we've once more entered uh, that scariest of huts, the one that Old Man Withers tells you not to venture into, but somehow you ignore his warnings. Yes, it's the horror hut. And this time around, as Halloween approaches, I thought we would uh, pick... Uh, another uh, classic, or in this case, a very subgenre-ish uh, creature, and uh, uh, roll them over and and, uh, and discuss them and see what's up with them. So I thought this time we would talk about uh, chuds and troglodytes. Uh, it's always great to sort of look at a, uh, a a less plowed field of horror. There's a small corpus of uh, troglodyte and and uh, cannibal humanoid living. Uh, under the city, uh, uh, movies and stories. And I guess probably can the, is the archetypal troglodyte the Morlock from, uh, Wells's time machine, would you say? Well, I guess technically the archetypal troglodyte would be the troglodytes that the, um, uh, ancient Greeks, uh, were worried about and thought that they lived just off the, co- off the shores, uh, as their Greek shores moved farther out. They came to decide that they lived in, uh, Ethiopia. But uh, it was just these guys that live in caves and eat reptiles and speak bat language and will uh, murder old people and eat you if you look at them wrong. And that is where the, uh, the the troglodyte sort of enters Western culture anyway. The Sawney Bean cannibals in uh, Scotland in the 15th century uh, provide sort of that uh, next kick to the legend. And that's probably sort of the combo that uh Wells uses with the Morlocks, which become the the as you say, the type for the modern genre troglodyte. Uh and the Morlocks, of course, are the descent the descendant of working folk. Thanks, H G 
Oh, nice, <laughs> nicely socialism socialist. Yeah, that, that was perhaps not his most Fabian moment. <laughs> yeah, or perhaps it was. Who can say? But anyway, the the, 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 the Morlocks, uh, as we know, are pallid. Uh, they have uh, their faces have sunken in. They have enormous uh, uh, eyes. They know things about machines and sne- and swarm around. And of course, they eat people. Uh, they, um, uh, eat the Eloy uh, as part of a, a symbiotic relationship. Uh, I guess the Eloy grow the vegetables that the troglodytes need for good bone health or something. Uh, I never really right. figured out what, what, uh, how that, that economy worked, but again, socialism. Um, so the, uh, and then the Morlocks will eat the Eloy as they die or get old so that there's no, uh, unseemly old people around to, uh, annoy, uh, the time travelers. Well, uh, unlike, uh, other, uh, domesticated, uh, uh sources of, of meat products, Eloy get more tasty, uh, as, as they age. So it's, it's like, uh, Eloy Ovin. Yeah, exactly. And this gets us to what the underlying fear is that's being uh, transmuted into horror form. When we, uh, go to, uh, uh, see something like, uh, Chud or, uh, Bone Tomahawk or the descent or, uh, there's a, not, and a lot of these are not necessary. The, the, this is not the finest corpus of horror, but then I guess that's a feature of how rarely you see them. Bone Tomahawk and The Descent are both great. Yeah, are both excellent. And then there's Chud. There's a 90s movie called uh, Creep, which is set in the London underground. Uh, and, uh, probably any, you know, long running horror TV show gets you your, uh, your mutant, uh, uh, subterranean cannibals, uh, sooner or later, uh, midnight meat train is another one, uh, death line, a, a classic in the, in the field. Um, so the fear that's being dealt with is, is the collision of civilization versus the primeval. And the idea that, uh, we have uh, built up our, uh, cities and that either if we, uh, venture outside of them, uh, as, uh, you know, we venture outside of the settlement in, in both, uh, the descent and bone tomahawk or, you know, even below us, even we, we think we're safe. We think we've built everything up, but they're beneath us are predators. Uh, and this, you know, this makes the, uh, the chuds are sort of, uh, then adjacent to kind of mole people. The idea that they're, uh, you know, there's somebody uh, underground and some, and often the idea is that they've, uh, either, uh, degenerated from uh, a more human state as in mon, mon, mon monsters, or they are, uh, you know, have never evolved, but at any rate, there's something more primitive. And the main thing about, uh, the primitive is that it wants to eat you. So, uh, this is the, the kind of, uh, primal civilizational fear. And as you suggest, that goes back to, uh, the Greeks, anybody who is at the edge of the map, um, had to be uncivilized because of course, uh, to flash back to our previous segment, that's how you, uh, justify continuing to conquer people is by mm-hmm. uh, saying that they're primeval. So there is something, uh, intrinsically, uh, uh, vexing and unseemly about the whole, uh, chud or troglodyte motif, uh, which, uh, means that it's a horror motif, doesn't it? Like, right. w- which, <laughs> it's <laughs> hard to think of. That's how you can tell. Yes. Yeah. It makes everyone uncomfortable on every level. Yes. Uh, <laughs> the, the breaking of taboos on one uh, level or another, whether it's the taboo between life and death that, uh, animates the, your, your Frankensteins or the, uh, everything's got a horrible taboo, uh, behind it. And this one, uh, the, the taboo is our, our fear of other people, other uh, people who we label as uh, degenerate or primitive who, of course, uh, want to get revenge or uh, who just see us as tasty. As delicious. Delicious. So how do we um, make 
if we want to turn the troglodyte on its head, then what would we do if we wanted to create a, a horror scenario or a short story that, uh, takes the troglodyte and puts a different spin on it the way that we're so used to doing with uh, more heavily utilized uh, monsters like your ghosts and your Frankensteins and your Draculas. Um, I think that one of the things that you can do uh, that uh, will take you a little bit towards the uh, Morlock side of things is you can look at the troglodytes as having a purpose of their own that if it is interrupted by you know, the, the surface dwellers coming down in there. Uh, it's not just that they're like, Oh, meat's back on the menu. The, the surface dwellers come down in and they either ruin something because they've busted up a, a wall that is keeping something worse behind, or they are interfering with a ritual unbeknownst to them, or they, you know, and it, and it might even be that it's a bad ritual. Like they needed to kidnap that baby for their ritual. And the ritual was to placate, uh, Nyagtha, the, the crawler in the dark so that it didn't come up and eat New York city, uh, via troglodyte town, but you still can't be allowing people to kidnap babies. Cause that's uncool. So there's a, at least a, a recognizable, uh, response mechanism as opposed to just uh, uh, other worlders taste like sunlight. Let's eat them. Uh, right. Uh, that just by giving the troglodytes literally a second dimension besides cannibalism, you're already doing something more uh, with the myth than most people do. I'm surprised that no one yet has done, uh, has come from the meat is murder perspective and uh, done one where the, the Morlock, uh, the, the Morlocks or Chuds or troglodytes are uh, kidnapping people. And then, and then you, our heroes go down and find out that uh, they're keeping people in veal fattening pens or they're uh, feeding them up to turn them into pate or something that, you know, implies the, the horror, the thing that we don't want to look at, the great taboo of uh, what goes on uh, behind the closed doors of uh, industrialized uh, meat production. And I guess uh, maybe that's just because there's just not enough uh, vegetarians making uh, independent horror movies. Right. The, the, the note, the notion that the troglodytes, have a a culture and differentiate amongst themselves is another way to turn the myth on its head because normally troglodytes are an undifferentiated mass because they're not just, especially post-Wells, they're not just the fear of people far out in the country who might eat you, viz. Uh, Sawney Bean and uh, Hills Have Eyes. They're also the fear of that ma- the urban mass, the, you know, not just the, the mole people slash homeless, but also the workers who you never deal with. And they're probably mad at you for perfectly legitimate reasons. And so that, that, that sort of crossover with the zombie, uh, which is also the fear of mass, uh, mass humanity, uh, gives you part of what makes the troglodyte go. So if you give troglodytes, uh, a culture and an agenda, even if it's a gore, a culture of gourmandism where they're kidnapping people with, uh, certain, uh, blood types or, or body mass indexes or whatever else, because that's what they want to eat. Uh, that, uh, that also sort of de- detorns the myth while keeping it still about cannibal humanoid underground dwellers, uh, which of course are your, are your key elements. We, we should also mention, uh, the great Ted Klein story, Children of the Kingdom, which is another modern masterpiece of, of troglodyte lore and is, uh, also very creepy and, um, uh, uncomfortable on a lot of levels. Uh, so if you haven't read T.E.D. Klein, uh, hunt down children of the kingdom. Uh, you could also do a fun thing with the idea of the, uh, you know, the forgotten king. Uh, it may be that, uh, if uh, one of your characters in, in Trail of Cthulhu is, uh, uh, kind enough to give you the in the blood, uh, drive, uh, 
which is explains why they're involved with uh, the occult and go, go and do dangerous things. And maybe the player thinks, oh, yeah, I'm going to turn out I'm a, I'm a, a, a deep one or, uh, you know, that I'm an ape person, you know, one of the uh, ones that is directly in Lovecraft. But it could be that uh, you uh, are a uh, the son or, or daughter of uh, someone who passes uh, for human but has some troglodyte or chud blood in them. And you, you don't know that. You've been, uh, perhaps you've even been adopted and uh, the uh, the chuds are coming to uh, you know their previous uh, king has died and they know the bloodlines and they've been uh, preparing you maybe they even you know made the arrangements to get you adopted so that you would learn the ways of the surface world and therefore they're getting ready to you know for their either their big invasion or just their you know improved hunting methods and so they uh, come and get you and take you down and they uh, expect you of course. As soon as they reveal to you that you're really one of them, of course you'll start to lead them uh, through uh, better hunting territories. And, you know, instead of attacking the gas station on the edge of town, you're going to go lead them straight to the Whole Foods, which right. is where the really delicious people are. Mm. Two Buck Chuck and Two Buck Larry and Two Buck Monica. Exactly. And so uh, that way, uh, you know, you could have the initial uh, scenario where that character, perhaps because the player is absent that week, uh, gets uh, taken down into the sewers by uh, their great uncle and great aunt and uh, shown their uh, great uh, cultural patrimony. And then, you know, even after that scenario where the rest of the party goes down and rescues you and gets you out of there, well, turns out you're, you're, you're part chud. What are you going to mm-hmm. do with that? Or you're, you're all chud and you have recently met your birth parents and that was weird for you. And, and, and that, that can explains be a- why you're so beautiful and pale. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> that, I guess that, that, that sort of sends us towards the Lovecraftian ghoul as another chud example, because those guys can engage in regular traffic with the surface world for reasons of procreation and maintaining bloodlines and heritages. Um, and so the ghouls can maybe sort of sideways enter this troglodyte myth. I think that the ghoul, because it comes out of a different myth pattern than the troglodyte one, we maybe want to separate it and not go too far down that subway line. But, uh, certainly if you find bits of the Lovecraftian ghoul or the, uh, Robert Barber Johnson ghoul from far below that you think you want to sneak into your chuds, um, for example, that they deal with necromancers a lot or that they, um, uh, enjoy, um, uh, dead bodies that fall down into the sewer, um, that you can, you can have that in there and, and flavor your chuds up with a little ghoulness, even though if you go too far ghoul, why didn't you just start with ghouls, right? Uh, another uh, thought that you could go with is that on the surface world, there are people who wish to become chuds, uh, that yeah. there is, uh, cause they have chud knowledge, troglone lore, trog yes. lore. And almost everything about being a chud seems terrible from the point of view of someone living on, on the surface world, but, uh, perhaps they're immortal. Or they can do magic like an Arthur Mackin, um, uh, little person can. Right. So there's, there's some reason that you're willing to become a horrible, twisted, uh, parody of your formal, uh, physical form and, and, you know, live under the subway, which is, uh, loud and difficult and there's rats, right? There's, it's, it's not a, a life, you know, there's not no a good chud life. lifestyle magazine that people aspire to. If we can give, if we can give our listeners a piece of advice here, it's don't be a chud. Don't be a chud. But there's some reason why enough people on the surface want to do that. So immortality or magic or, uh, you know, a ecstatic physical existence, perhaps, uh, you know, that there is no greater bliss than being a, a, a chud who is a, a freshly fed and, uh, uh, so you could, you know, that gets you into sort of a drug analogy where, 
Uh, you know, the, the chuds select people who seem like they might be kind of politically useful and then they feed them some chud gruel and then, then they have them, uh, as thralls who, uh, you know, if they, if they really behave themselves, they can live down under the sewers with the rats. Um, and so that gives you the idea of people, you know, choosing to make a horrible choice. And, and again, you've got, uh, you know, just your, your next door neighbor could be a prospective chud. And, and what do you do about that? And, uh, uh, makes it uh, a little uh, more dangerous once you're even on the surface world to learn that there are all these people who just want to embrace uh, a horrible uh, a bestial predatory lifestyle because uh, that's what excites them or that's what uh, suits their purpose. And yeah, the most dangerous game type people, you know, the uh, the sort of um, uh, you, you know, just hunting lions is no longer a challenge and I want to, you know, lurk in the sewers and, and attack um, uh, sewer workers. That doesn't sound very fun, but there you are. Yeah, or you could flip that on its head and, uh, you know, there's someone on the surface who is learning to, has commodified the chuds in some way. There's something about them. Uh, you know, their, their pineal glands are, are, uh, useful or, or some such thing so that there's, uh, people who are, uh, you know, they're, uh, hunting the chuds. And so of course the chuds hunt people in turn. Right. Well, it, it could be even as simple as, um, you, you sort of riff on Pikmin, right? That the chuds yeah. have their, their weird petroglyphs and their crazy art. And so this desperate New York gallery is, you know, trying to find the newest scene and it goes down and it takes their petroglyphs and exhibits them as the work of an outsider artist. And, uh, and so it becomes a giant scene and they start selling for hundreds of thousands of, of, of dollars. And meanwhile, the chuds are like, you took our sacred petroglyph. We need that to worship Ogrelot, God of the underworld. Uh, now we have to go up into your gallery and eat you. Uh, we didn't want to. It's not our way. We, uh, plus the wine is always terrible at gallery receptions. Yeah. Um, yes. but, but that's part of that, you know, that, that sort of, if you're going to loot something out of the, out of Chudland, um, maybe it, you're, you're trying to exploit them and they become, uh, speaking of parallels with our previous, um, uh, segments, an exoticized other that you can, um, exploit, uh, colonial style by taking their religious items and saying, Oh, what a quaint death fetish mask. Let's hang it in my apartment wall. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, uh, really an, unex- it sort of seems to me like the, like the Chud, uh, as we're, uh, you know, perhaps entering in a, uh, an era of, uh, uh, more desperate questions over uh, resources and who gets to control them and who doesn't that uh, perhaps the chuds are in for it's hard to say a renaissance because they've never had a, never had a in the first place <laughs> yes i mean even during the actual renaissance people were like yeah all right there's troglodytes whatever yeah uh, <laughs> but uh, uh it seems like there uh is a lot of space to play uh with this particular set of motifs uh when a lot of other uh horror uh creatures have been uh uh, done and done it uh, over again. So uh, maybe we'll have to go off and uh, work on some chud stuff. And in the meantime, uh, let's see what's on this commercial. And then after that, I bet there's something else.
Hey, Ken, what happens when you add a hefty dollop of Babylon to your urban fantasy? What doesn't happen? Babylon is the template on which... That sounds fabulous. Where can I learn more? In Volume 1 of The Best of Phoenix, now available in PDF at DriveThruRPG. That must mean that all three volumes of The Best of Phoenix are available separately or in a value-conscious omnibus edition. When you're typing it into the search engine, you're typing F-E-N-I-X. And what you get when you type that is the best of Sweden's much-vaunted magazine devoted to role-playing and gamer-friendly reviews. Including a metric oodle of articles by yours truly. They use the metric oodle in Sweden, right? Indeed they do, Ken. And in Sweden, by law, a metric oodle must contain such features as... Fallen Gods. Runepunk Steam Quests. Lamb Chop Love Songs. And the comic strip adventures of lazy beer-loving Bernard the Barbarian. All brought to you by the expert editorial hands of Tova and Anders Gilbring. Not by law. Logically related, but related by their love of role-playing. That's the Best of Phoenix Volumes 1 to 3. The first of many gaming wonders to come from Askfageln. Ask for Askfageln by name. And don't forget, that's F-E-N-I-X. And remember, that's in English, not in Swedish. In English, not Swedish. Protect this podcast from hungry cellar dwellers by joining such Patreon backers as... Corey Welch. Lewis R. Evans. Mark Giles. Todd Olson. And the Redacted Files Podcast. Welcome once more to another installment of Ken and or Robin Talk to Someone Else. And in this case, Ken, that's me, is talking to not just someone else, but the someone else... (laughs) <laughs> Possibly the master of the four-panel comic gag, John Kavalik, here with us in our sumptuous Chicago studios. John, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thank you, Ken. It's um, a pleasure to be here. For the one person who doesn't know, give us the brief pressy of Dork Tower, your beloved comic strip, and how it came to be. Uh, Dork Tower uh, grew out of my old comic strip, Wildlife, which I've been doing uh, for newspapers. Actually, was syndicated at one point. Um, I've been gaming since 1970-something. Um, and it was a very good something. It was a very good something. Um, but anyway, uh, I was uh, 22 years ago... I was at Gen Con when I was in Milwaukee talking with an editor at Shadis Magazine. Uh, rest in peace, Shadis mm-hmm. Magazine. And he, one out now. <laughs> he asked me if I could do a cartoon strip for them on gamers. And I said, of course, of course. There's no, no question I can do a cartoon strip on gaming. And I then went into a complete panic. Um, <laughs> And I had no idea what to do, so I imported my character Carson the Muskrat from my old strip Wildlife. I created three brand new characters based upon friends of mine and also based upon personality traits of mine. And uh, it became Dark Tower. And it was named not after Stephen King's Dark Tower, not after Dark Tower the board game, but after a little-known uh, role-playing RuneQuest supplement, Duck Tower. Ah, so there, if you are in the kind of bar where you can win bets with that, <laughs> you can now win bets with that. That's that's our gift to you, is a free beer. Have a really good beer with that right. one, I hope. Yeah. Um, so that's the sort of the origin story. Then, as I alluded to in the intro, uh, over the course of that comic's development, you sort of honed it 
into what I maintain is, if not the best, a best of breed example of that sort of four panel gag strip. And I always think of Johnny Hart as sort of the, the Haydn of that format, right? He creates all the rules, doesn't necessarily do all of it perfectly. That's for Mozart to do. And I'm not going to say John is the Mozart of the four panel comic strip, but I defy someone to tell me who is. So when you are, and obviously you've been hugely influenced by, uh, Charles Schultz. Yes. Peanuts. Yes. The Beethoven. The uh, Beethoven, if you will. Although he doesn't so much break the model as much like Beethoven, sort of infuse it with that emotionality. Yes. That Beethoven exactly. does. So do you think of yourself, I mean, are those two sort of still your lodestars? Are there other creators in the space that you look to? Because when you are someone like you who is, I mean, I mean, I do cheat off Robin, but <laughs> when you're someone like you, you have to sort of cheat off much, I mean, sort of legendary figures, right? Uh, Not that Robin isn't legendary, of course. Please don't let him, <laughs> Robin. <laughs> I, I honestly, those were when I started back in school. Uh, those were my two uh, greatest influences. BC back in the 1970s was wonderful. It was killer. For all of the reasons you mentioned, mm-hmm. and a lot of that gets forgotten because uh, you know, Johnny Hart. Because cartoonists age. <laughs> yeah. Well, some of them age better than others. Yeah, and right. I'm, I'm trying to be one of those that ages, you know, ages nicely. Yeah, yeah. nicely. Um, but um, yeah, th- those were absolutely uh, the two uh, go-tos uh, that taught me what I know about the four-panel strip. Later on, Doonesbury, and to a later, uh, lesser extent, uh, Bloom County. Um, then there's some Calvin and Hobbes, but by the time Calvin and Hobbes and uh, Bloom County were on the scene, I was in college, and right. so the actual big influence was right, yeah. you know that 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 ship had passed. Uh, but they were, you know, still inspirational. And Doonesbury at his best, uh, which again is a long time ago now, but for the younger kids in the seventies, Gary Trudeau used to be a cartoonist. Um, and <laughs> oh, even, um, uh, Bloom County, although a lot of the love of Bloom County and even in Calvin Hobbes is the art as well, but it's very much, uh, there's a lot of text in those that is still not in Dork Tower. The Dork Tower still seems to be more simple, punchy, I try to... I don't say gag-driven, but very telegraphic in a way that you know, Doonesbury never was. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I try to keep it... I try to keep the writing as, for want of a better expression, on point as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, when I edit myself, it will mostly be to take out unnecessary words, mm-hmm. unnecessary sentences, sometimes unnecessary paragraphs. Um it's just the cartooning I grew up loving. Uh, it's what I feel most comfortable with. I, I could uh, go more wordy. I uh, just choose not to. Right. There's something to me very perfect about delivering an idea in the fewest uh, number of lines and the fewest words necessary. Sort of like a haiku. Essentially, yes. Yeah. yes. Uh, and that sort of, I guess, leads us tangentially into the other sort of question. If you're a writer, certainly if I'm a writer, if I get bored with something that I'm doing, I can sort of go way off into left field and do something else. If it's like I think that I've plumbed, uh, let's say, 1930s Germany enough, I can go off to, you know, uh, 1870s Azerbaijan, or I can go to, you know, 60s China, or I can do any number of other things, even just staying on Earth. And, of course, other people create magical fantasy realms and far future vistas and whatnot. You're sort of stuck in that same room, that same comic strip. In a way, it's sort of like a Seinfeld problem <laughs> where you have a situation and you have to keep drawing comedy out of that. Is that 
I mean, how do you do that? I mean, I wouldn't be able to be funny for ten times in a row with the palette that I couldn't cheat on, and you maintained it for twenty years. I, I I still cheat on it. The the trick is not getting people to notice you're cheating, right? Um, yeah, I'll bring new characters into the strip. Mm-hmm. I will uh, change up uh, the the theme of the strip from time to time. I will. And every so often, you have a, a like a, a moment that's set inside the game a little bit. Yes, where you can, but it's still it's not the same degree that say. Um, uh, uh, Nights at the Dinner Table is where really it's, you know, so much of that is that imaginative, imagined land that they're in and then the dysfunctional personalities around it. This is still so much more personally driven. Even if there's a one panel where you're talking about the Turbonium Dragon or whatever, certainly by panel three, you're back at the table and by panel four, it's back to Matt and Igor or Matt and Ken or Matt and Carson. For the most part, I mean, sometimes I can get away with something. Uh, I had, I had, Igor and Matt as Roman legionnaires. And the whole point of the joke was, you know, along Hadrian's Wall. Mm. And the entire point of the, this was to get to the punchline picked or it didn't happen. Exactly. Yes. Um, so I'm, I'm very fortunate that my readers will let me get away with something like that those times I wish to. But, you know, back when I was publishing the comic book, I had them in character a little bit more because I could fill out full stories. Uh, with them in Adventuring Road. Right. Um, I've actually gone back to that a little bit. I haven't published anything yet, but there have been a couple of longer format stories, which I've done, which have got them completely in character. Or for the strips that ran in Dragon Magazine, some of the six or seven panel full-page strips, uh, because I was being paid to make fun of Dungeons & Dragons, and I gladly did that. Um, so they would be a little a more... target-rich environment. ...in-game there than uh, with the four-panel web strips. Right. Now, speaking of the comic strip and speaking of the uh, the long-form stuff, you have, perhaps coincidentally, perhaps providentially, a Kickstarter coming out yes. for just such a collection. Why don't you tell the kids about the Tao of Igor? Ah, the Tao of Igor. Well, the Tao of Igor is a brand new Dork Tower collection containing uh, some of the old comic books, which have never been collected, and some new material, which I've been having a huge amount of fun with. It's the first new uh, Dork Tower collection in 10 years. Uh, I, I gave up publishing 10 years ago. Um, I've missed... I've missed it a little bit. Well, I've missed I've missed writing the longer form right. stories. No one in the history of mankind has ever missed publishing. No, this is yeah. I hated publishing. <laughs> I really did not like it at all. But I, I John nephew shaking his fist at the <laughs> computer right now. Uh, he's, he's he's carving a, a a table, an oak table in anger. At right. This yeah. Exactly. Um, but no, I did not miss publishing. In fact, my daughter was born ten years ago. I needed to spend more time with family, and the publishing aspect of my uh, work was the one thing I, which was just not making me happy. I loved writing the comic books; I loved getting them out there. Uh, but yeah, the publishing—I just I, it, it drove me mad. I, mean, I did it well. I mean, you know, Dark Tower ended up selling between uh, a third to a half a million copies of the comic book. That's not nothing for an independent comic. That's how, very good. Uh, there are about 100,000 copies of the various trade paperbacks mm-hmm. out there. Um, but keeping inventory... So what you're trying to say is this Kickstarter will fund easily and people who back are going to be getting 
amazing deals. I hope so. Hope so. <laughs> this I've been I've been a part of a, a large number of other people's kickstarters at this point. Uh my my autobiography now it's payback is is uh, going to be titled I am a stretch goal, right? But this is the first kickstarter. I think your autobiography is a stretch goal in this <laughs> Uh, but yeah, this is the first Kickstarter I've just done on my own, or I've been that, the head up. I mean, obviously, right. I'm having a lot of help from a lot of people. Yeah, that's who the way to do it. Done. Um, I've got you know folks working all across the board on this, and I could not be doing this without their help. Um, but uh, yeah, this is the first one that I've been in charge of. So we shall see. Right. So ride or die, people. This is John Kavalik's reputation <laughs> rests in your shell-like hands. <laughs> Only you. Can help. Can prevent forest fires. But it should be fun. It should be, yeah. I'm looking for, you know. Now, now, can you tease big revelations like, uh, Jilly is going to marry Carson? That obviously <laughs> everyone has been waiting for. Oh, nuts. Yeah, and right. you had to go there. I didn't have to go there. I chose uh, to go there. I, I told you that in confidence. Right. And, and well, here we are. Is there anything else that you can tease now that I've spoiled the big spoiler? It's going to be wrapping up a major storyline, mm-hmm. a major plotline on the book. Right. And setting the stage for future books. Uh, Kickstarter seems uh, to be a way of getting material out there, which does not involve you know, the aches and pains of publishing in the past. Um, it so still I'm involves a ton of aches and pains. It does, friend. yes. yes. Let's not dismiss the aches and pains too no, readily. No, no. Indeed, no. Because um, now you're going to make Hal shake his fist at the... <laughs> <laughs> Hal Mangold, uh, who's also, ironically, carving an open right. table yes. on anger right now. Um, uh, no, it's, it's, uh, there's, yeah, there's going to be, uh, some, some big points wrapped up in this collection, uh, which some people have been waiting 10 years uh, to wrap up, and I feel quite bad about that. Uh, I feel shame. Um, I'm a Christian. Shame. You don't. You don't owe these people anything. <laughs> I'm. I, I'm. A You're an exalted god dropped here by the brow of Athena herself to you bring see, wisdom to these unenlightened masses. That's what I told Judith. I mean, they, yeah, should be, they should be grateful for any drop of ink from your pen. <laughs> and uh, speaking of ways that are easier than publishing, you also have a. A Patreon yes. that is doing pretty well and, and has that was inspired power back onto the inspired by uh, I'll be honest inspired by the Ken and Robin Patreon um, of which I'm a supporter. Thank you uh, and you know, a proud supporter. It's it's the best the, kind. The uh, the Ken and Robin uh, talk about stuff. The podcast that I feel both smarter and dumber at the end. Of that is our goal. Patreon. We, um, we aim to educate and shame <laughs> in equal parts. So yeah, for the 20th anniversary of Dork Tower. Uh, my, the, um, David Michael, who is a friend of mine who also runs the Dork Store. He does the fulfillment and also does the fulfillment for the Bike the Barns charity ride every year. I had been encouraging me. Where you wear a duck on your head for some I, ridiculous reason. Yeah, I'm, I'm still not entirely sure about that one. It seemed like a good idea six years ago and it's happened every year since. But anyway, he'd also been pushing me to do a Patreon. And so the 20th anniversary of the strip seemed uh, like a very good time to get this going. And last December, the Patreon launched. And right now it's up to the point where we're back to doing two strips a week online. And we're closing in on three strips a week, which is the point uh, where Dark Tower started. So there we go. Full circle, if you will. With apparently an endless number of things you can do, including set up... Cheap puns involving the Roman legions. Exactly. Uh, so go back to Patreon in case you're so blind to have not done it before. 
And the Kickstarter is Dawa Vigor. Dawa Vigor. If you just go to dorktower.com, uh, there'll be all of the information there, links to the Kickstarter, um, information on it and, uh, I'm assuming it's going to be... And a link in the show notes, of course. Well, of course, yes. Of course. All right, John, thanks so much for coming out and letting people know uh, what it's like to be the best in the world at what you do. Uh, that's always the part that sort of amazes me, that uh, th- this is this is the guy. This is the freaking heir to Haydn, if you care. So, I'm, I'm very glad I wasn't drinking when you yeah, said that. Absolutely. But, uh, but, yeah, it's always great to see you. Um, you should come down to Chicago more often. By more often, I mean permanently. <laughs> now it's time to venture out of this hut into the ad and into the hut on the other side, which sadly will probably not contain John Kavalik. Oh. But it will be in English. Not in Swedish. In English. Not, not Swedish. Swedish. Born of the U.S. government's 1928 raid on the degenerate coastal town of Innsmouth, Massachusetts, the covert agency known as Delta Green opposes the forces of darkness with honor but without glory. Delta Green agents fight to save humanity from unnatural horrors, often at a shattering personal cost. In Delta Green, the role-playing game, you play those agents. Fight to save human lives and sanity from threats beyond space and time. The long-whispered-of slipcase set has now shipped. This stunning edition includes two full-color rulebooks. The Any Award-winning Agent's Handbook features rules for creating agents and playing the game. Gear! Combat! Dossiers! The Handler's Guide for the game moderator who presents the mysteries and horrors of the Cthulhu Mythos. Terrible Secrets of the Intelligence World and of eons pre-human. Percentile-based rules compatible with 20 years' worth of Delta Green scenarios and source books. A universe of cosmic terror lurks just out of sight. Can your agents stand against it? It's time once more to wind our way up the creakety cobweb stairs. Uh, and uh, once we get to the top of the stairs, there's the glowering portrait of Madame Vulatsky. We will wave at her, although she never waves back, and then head on through into the Edwardian parlor where Patreon backer Dan Cassidy uh, waits to ask a question of the consulting occultist. And that question is, please discuss how the nocebo effect explains the power of curses. Now, uh, listeners, you may, of course, know the placebo effect, which is the idea that if uh, you think that you are receiving a positive treatment of some sort, uh, whether you have received uh, pills in a uh, clinical trial that don't actually do anything, that are just inert, or that... Uh, you have received uh, some sort of spiritual healing that, uh, guess what? The brain is still part of the body. Yes. Uh, and it may have a uh, powerful ability to uh, participate in the body's self-healing mechanism so that the idea that something is going well for you uh, can be a positive. And the whole point of drug trials is to make sure that the drug that is being administered does more for you than just the idea that you're receiving treatment. Now, that's not to say that it's Unreal, because see previous statement about brain brain being part of you. And therefore, the flip side of that, because I don't want to try and pronounce the word corollary, is... <laughs> or corollary. Or corollary, there you go, uh, is 
a nocebo is something that the idea that if you are being harmed uh, causes you harm. And so uh, this, of course, is one of the explanations uh, that fun ruiners use to explain why curses actually really work in the real world, which is that if you are told that you are suffering from a curse, especially in a culture where curses are deemed to be uh, absolutely real and as much as everyday life as trees and birds and rocks and stuff, that your brain will uh, react by uh, filling your body with those nasty stress chemicals with the cortisol and with adrenaline that you don't know what to do with. And uh, so it uh, makes uh, absolutely perfect sense that, uh, uh, especially if you're someone who is prone to anxiety or depression or all sorts of other things that uh, people can, uh, other people in your life can harm you just by the way that they interact with you because you, uh, your brain is, is set to release all of these chemicals that uh, damage the rest of your body, you can feel like you're having a curse. Uh, so, uh, Ken, uh, what uh, uh, beyond those basics uh, have you encountered in, in, in the vast uh, literature of realistic explanations for supernatural and occult beliefs? All right. Uh, first of all, hats off to a guy named Walter Bradford Cannon, who uh, came up with the idea of what he called a voodoo death, uh, which uh, people who don't want to insult a religion call psychogenic death or psychosomatic death. Um, but the notion is he was trying to explain the very well by 1942 documented cases of people who believed that they were under a curse and died. And, of course, people are just dying all the time for no reason, but Cannon thought that there was a specific result to uh, what he called bone-pointing syndrome, where you would have the, the, the bad sorcerer, the bad witch, would point a bone at someone and say, you're going to die, and then, sure enough, they sicken and die. Um, and he had a ton of anthropological research for it and built it up, and he had a theory that it was caused by you um, uh, making your adrenaline go crazy and that the adrenaline basically poisoned you. They experimented on drowning rats and discovered that it was more likely that it's actually your brain just stopping your vagus nerve um, because your brain is like, well, there's no point getting any information. Just shut down. We're doomed. And so it seems even worse than adrenaline poisoning. It's literally you think yourself to death. Uh, which is uh, pretty terrible. Um, I don't think that they've it done turns a lot out of your brain has a self-destruct mechanism and right. uh, a curse can activate it. <laughs> I, I don't think that they have a lot of further study on the possible causes. I will say that fun ruiners of fun ruiners who are the worst <laughs> kind of fun ruiners say that there's no such thing as a uh, voodoo uh, death as, as the whole no- notion and that the people probably just um, stopped drinking water because they were, uh, sad and that that's what killed them. Um, which it is sort of the same thing, but not really. So, um, just to, you know, leave it out there. Uh, there have not been double blind trials of voodoo death. Uh, thank God. Yes. Um, <laughs> uh, and the, and the notion that, um, people, experience the nocebo has, however, been pretty much clearly demonstrated that, for example, if you're told such and such a drug will cause itching, you will feel itching, even though there's no physiological reason you should feel itching or that such and such a drug might cause blindness. You're going to have uh, sympathetic blindness or uh, psychosomatic blindness. And these kinds of results happen. It seems like between four and eight percent of people are uh, in any given 
uh, trial will have the nocebo effect, uh, affect them enough that it shows up in the study. So it, that's not a small number of, of, of humans, but it's not so common that you can just kill anybody by pointing a bone at them and saying, you're going to die now. So there has to be probably some degree of neurological disposition, maybe a weak brain vagus nerve connection to begin with. Uh, or as uh, anthropologists say, if you're just deeply immured in a culture complex, you believe what that culture complex tells you to believe, even in the face of obvious insanity. And that sort of fundamental truth manifests in all manner of things, including people who die when a Maori uh, sorcerer points a bone at you. Uh, right. So there's, the, there's a sort of an anti-survivor bias yeah. going on because uh the uh if you live in a society where people can be cursed to death uh you remember you know uncle jim down the road who died of a curse uh you don't remember his six brothers who were also cursed by the same uh sorcerer and shrugged it off right. uh, because that's not as as vivid or or interesting a story and so the uh, the, the belief that this can happen also depend, you know, of course, pareidolia, uh, gets involved as well. So if Uncle Jim falls off of his uh, wagon a couple of weeks later and gets trampled by his oxen, well, of course that was the result of a curse. And yeah. it might have been, it might have been that his worrying about uh, being under the curse had him hyper vigilant and losing sleep and, uh, you know, had his nerves frayed, uh, and he made a mistake, uh, that he wouldn't have ordinarily made, hence the trampling. Uh, but again, that's the case of the, the curse working. Hence the trampling, or his hands were so sweaty that the rain slipped. Yeah. yeah the, um, and, and that's the sort of generalized, uh, uh truth of, uh, behind an awful lot of, uh, phenomena is that, uh, you have, you remember exciting things and you forget boring things and magic doesn't work as boring and magic does work as exciting. And that's true for astrology, just like it's true for, uh, bone pointing. And I suppose that you could have a pla or nocebo effect with astrology where someone says, oh, you're a Virgo, therefore you can't hit on a Taurus successfully. And you go into the room and the, you know, the girl's a Taurus and you're like, well, as a Virgo, I can't hit on a Taurus. We're incompatible. So if you do talk to her, you're, you know, you, you lack self-confidence and that, you know, transmits it to her. And she's like, typical Virgo and, and wanders off. Or conversely, you're like, I'm a Leo. I can hit on a Taurus. And, you know, because you express that confidence with a placebo effect, uh, she's more receptive, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Happiness ensues. So it's, so it's sort of this, uh, notion that, you know, especially in things that, govern your willed behavior or even your semi-willed behavior, your emotional behavior. They, I mean, it's, it's, it's completely obvious that, uh, being told you're under a death curse is the kind of thing that would affect you emotionally, especially if you come from a society or you're in a environment, let's say you're a, an anthropologist from Yale and you're on some Pacific Island and they say, Oh, I'm sorry. You've stepped in the taboo circle. You're going to be killed. Uh, by, by the curse, nothing we can do about it. It's, you seem like a nice guy for a Yaley. And then, you know, even if you don't believe in it, everyone around you is reacting. We're a social animal. We react to people's reaction. So your degree of rational disbelief in the curse might not even be enough to protect you because everyone else is treating the, you as though you're a, a dead man walking. And sure enough. Yes. If, if rationality, if you could talk yourself out of being. Uh, anxious or apprehensive or fearful or, or yes. depressed, uh, there would be, humanity would be very different. And, yes. uh, yes, it would. Psychotherapists would, uh, have one session each, mm-hmm. uh, with you. Um, and, uh, that, I guess, gets us to the question of how do we make this fun ruining thing fun again by putting it into a, 
uh, a narrative form. I suppose you could have a story where there is uh, someone who's uh, very conscious of uh, the way that the nocebo effect works and is uh, acting uh, as a witch doctor. So they sort of observe people in the community and they sense uh, who the vulnerable people are who uh, would most likely uh, have a vagus nerve shut off or uh, spiral into a depression so deep that they would uh, stop to stop drinking water and so forth. And so it could be that the, uh, you know, you're the, the, the... Like being a spiritualist grifter, a lot of it is picking your victim correctly. Yeah, and so uh, this the story is all about... Uh, you know, you know that you're, you can't talk people out of the idea of there being a curse because even if they consciously agree with you that curses don't exist, as is the case of everybody who participated opening King Tut's tomb knew, <laughs> so, knew better, but still I bet at 3 a.m. after there's a long string of weird occurrences among your colleagues, uh, the, the adrenaline probably spiked there. And so, mm-hmm. uh, you could have, uh, you know, someone who's your trick is to, you know, uh, you can also spot the people in the community who are most likely to be uh, suffering a, a death curse and find a way to protect them uh, from uh, the uh, the sorcerer the next time he comes to town to demand uh, his fair share of everyone else's goats. Right. Um, keep keeping the goats intact. Another possible thing that you can do with the with the nocebo effect is you can set your game in a sort of a a, a, a future like flatliners type um, rogue uh, uh, neurologists running around there t- and they're testing it. They're saying, well, that vagus nerve research was from the sixties. Um, maybe we should go back and look at it more. And where can we find a a curse a, a bunch of curse believers? And maybe they go to the local neo pagan community, or maybe they travel out into the wildy woods and find some. Uh, Native uh, Americans who are living perfectly happily uh, away from a bunch of uh, jerk uh, neurologists, but they get talked into it and they provide an example. And sure enough, there is a neurologically measurable curse effect. And what is neurologically measurable can maybe be replicated. And so now you have the ability with specific, um, uh, very scientific uh, sets of stimuli to induce a bone-pointing death in someone, and does that change the world? And one of your researchers is like, great, I have got a list of people I want to point bones at. And they go off, and now you're like, well, we have this knowledge, but this is a very one-trick pony superpower, so it becomes sort of a scrabbly, lo-fi, fear-itself kind of medical adventure game in a way. And the notion that these curses, uh, that the curse effect is real and uh, and replicable without just poisoning someone, which would be the fast way to do it, I guess, um, gives you sort of a, um, uh, a a driver for at least a, a pretty good scenario, I think. Yeah, I think there's really something fun about the image of a death curse, uh, a meta death curse, spreading through a group of putative hyper-rationalists, as you would find in your uh, neurology department, where everybody knows how it works. Everybody knows it's completely irrational to fall prey to the idea that you might be uh, subjected to uh, a curse, and it's basically then a killer meme uh, that mm-hmm. once you know about it, you can't stop thinking about it. And, uh, you know, how do you shut down this uh, growing awareness that's spreading through society and uh, killing off four to eight percent of the population. Because if, right. If that actually that, happened, that would be <laughs> that would uh, be a lot a, of people. <laughs> an incredible uh, catastrophe. So yeah. uh, it's sort of the the serious version of the Monty Python's uh, joke. So funny, it kills everyone who who hears it. Right. 
um, and uh, provides you with the notion that shadowy forces might be trying to weaponize it. That you know, your 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 buddy let it out, and so you tracked him down and stopped it. And then you could run the sequel where, oh, one of the people that he bone pointed at was a guy at the Russian embassy, and now the GRU is super interested in you know weaponized curses, and they've taken it back and they've done their own research with the uh, Tungus people up in Siberia and found their own cool weaponized curse. Uh, and maybe they have the ability to drive people amok that there's a Siberian version of amok. Uh, and so they take this, uh, newly weaponized, uh, 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 curse methodology that maybe includes a way of driving someone, uh, insane a la amok or turning them into a cannibal a la the so-called Wendigo psychosis and that that becomes their new methodology. And at some point you could put occultism back in through the back door where is there some entity that just wants people to do this that uh, that uh, sort of is unleashed by your ability? Is it a, a hidden personality, a Jungian shadow archetype? Uh, and you can clothe it in all the pseudoscientific psychological jargon that you want. But at some point, you're doing a game of demons, right? And, and people right. are using demons to kill each other. And even without the demons, an interesting idea is that if, there, if society is increasingly oriented around uh, fear... And, uh, you know, the, the overall level of fear-based appeals in, uh, uh political discourse, uh, for example, in propaganda that tells you that, uh, the other people are out to get you and you've got to, uh, all band together, that, uh, that has immediate positive effects for an authoritarian, uh, regime. But of course, also, perhaps that increases the percentage of adrenalized people who are susceptible to death by curse from four to eight to maybe eight to 12%. Right. And so because they're uh, already nervous and paranoid because they live in communist China or Putin's Russia. Uh, So it may be that you've discovered this uh, exciting side effect of a propagandized society, or perhaps the uh, whole point of that from the, to get back to your demons is, uh, you know, they're the ones who, uh, taught the science of propaganda in order to uh, increase the number of people that they could uh, uh, possess so that uh, if the curse doesn't kill you, it makes you into a demon host. And and we all know that uh, that demons are, are looking for bodies. Uh, and so on that note, uh, we better say something soothing and calming and tell people that uh, listening to this podcast, of course, uh, we've been discussing anxiety and, and, and fear of being destroyed and having a sharp bone pointed at you of being possessed by demons. But you can put all of those things out of your mind because as a Ken and Robin listener, we of course have a soothing placebo effect. And that placebo effect of course is heightened uh, if you join us in supporting our, our, our Patreon. Yes, the, in, in double-blind medical studies, uh, Patreon supporters fall victim to bone-pointing curses vastly less often than the control group. In, in fact, so uh, so go off and, and immunize yourself either by uh, pledging or, or increasing your, your pledge, and we'll be back. Our pledge to you is that we'll be back with another healing episode that protects you from from chuds and sorcerers and, and uh, all manner of trouble next week. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Astphagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep deadly nocebos away from this podcast by joining such Patreon backers as... Craig Maloney. Jan Zaleski. Rich Renaud. 
Gallo, Ryan Mannix, and Scott Stefanski. Snag Ken and Robin apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Wear such shirts as Nod Knowingly If You're a Tulpa. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, we will talk about stuff.